Hello and welcome to Inside Scoop Live. I'm Sherry Hoyt and I'm your host. Today I'm talking with Michael McCord, author of End Times, More Great Adventures in Real America, a political satire featuring an alternate America gone mad. Michael McCord, the former political editor and columnist for the Portsmouth Herald, is an award-winning journalist and writer. A U.S. Army veteran, he covered his first presidential primary campaign in 1980 and has written for dozens of publications, including the Boston Globe magazine, Boston Globe, New Hampshire Business Review, Boston Herald, New Hampshire Magazine, and has won New England and New Hampshire Press Association awards for investigative reporting, political commentary, feature and historical writing, and business journalism. Among many adventures, he profiled James Doherty, Marilyn Monroe's mostly unknown first husband, for Boston Globe magazine. He also co-wrote the produced theatrical play, Think Twice Before You Think, about the life and writings of E.E. Cummings. His essay on the history of the New Hampshire presidential primary was included in the 2008 analogy, The American Presidency. His Real America Saga includes The Execution Channel, A Political Fable, 2013, and End Times, More Great Adventures in Real America, 2019. Penelope will be the final book in the trilogy. Michael lives in Exeter, New Hampshire with his artist wife, Anne, and their cat, Vito, the Twitter star of the family. For more information about Michael McCord and his books, visit his website at michaelmccordauthor.com. Well, hi, Michael. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Well, hi, Sherry, and thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking with you ever since I read your book, End Times. So uh, to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Well, End Times, uh, More Great Adventures in Real America is the second book in my, uh, what I would call the Real America trilogy. And it follows up on two or three uh, important characters from the first book, which was called The Execution Channel, a political fable uh, back in 2013. I have created an alternative universe that looks somewhat familiar uh, to the kind of the political chaos that we see now, but it's obviously, it's satire, it's a bit more extreme, as you noticed when you read the book, no doubt, Yeah. And uh, but it's still eerily familiar. And I've created in the second book, In Times, uh, America Breaks Apart not unlike what happened in 1861. A, a country called Real America succeeded from what remains now what, we, what I call Old USA, and it succeeded in part because they wanted their own you know, financial independence, and uh, they essentially wanted to, what I would call, create a magnificent hybrid of a national crime syndicate and death cult. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and they're led by their maniacal, uh, I would say, uh, a sociopath emperor, supreme for life, uh, Lawrence Bowie, who was one of the main characters in the first book. And now he kind of survived what, what happened. It was, it was a coup at the end of the first book. And now he is, uh, you know, he declared the independence in 2020, uh, September 2020. Okay. And... Uh, Obviously, that's another thing. It, it takes place in the near future. Yeah. And then the plot broadens out to focus on he has declared that because he is such a, a pathological narcissist as well, he's declared a, you know, kind of a, a coronation night to uh, an official one for the whole world to see uh, in December of 2021. And the plot 
essentially focuses on those that are fighting it back, the resistance. Yeah. The moocher resistance front is what I call it. <laughs> and essentially the plot goes is that there is a, a magnificent lady called Penelope the Psychic who is the head of the kind of the intelligence and uh, operations for the Mucha Resistance Fund, and she is determined to take Bowie down. And so there is an information warfare plot, and there's all sorts of speeches and and kind of, you, you learn a lot about how real America came into being, and then there's kind of a, it kind of sets things up for the third book. It's kind of a wild ride. Tell me, what did you think about it? I mean, in terms of a wild ride and and kind of me bombarding you with interesting information and and creations. Yeah, um, I have to say, it, it was a wild ride, and, and I'm not sure I like the way your mind works. <laughs> but <laughs> but it was it was a fun book to read. I That's what I keep going back to. It's like, I haven't had that much fun reading a book in a long time. So, But I, I really enjoyed it, and I thought the characters are, are fun and amazing and outrageous, and there's a great plot. And I, I was wondering, how did your vision of the real America in your story come about? Well, for those who don't know, I, I, I'm a longtime political journalist based in New Hampshire. I've uh, covered multiple uh, presidential primaries here and also state and local government mm-hmm. and a lot of national politics. And um, so I have built up this kind of memory bank, I guess, and knowledge. And beginning about a decade ago, after uh, President Obama was inaugurated and we were dealing with a major recession, and there was all, uh, and then there was a push to get Obamacare passed. I thought things were going a little bit off the rails. I thought the line got out of hand, um, and I thought the political pushback was a little bit uh, bonkers, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. I covered some of the so-called Tea Party uh, gatherings at congressional um, or town halls and stuff like that, and uh, there was even one where President Obama himself showed up in Portsmouth mm-hmm. that I covered, and there were people outside with guns uh, who were saying, you know, don't tread on me you know, don't take away my health care and, and wow. even some older folks who were saying, you know, don't take away my Medicare, knowing that Medicare is actually a government program that they paid in to for their entire lives. But that's another point. Right, right. And uh, this is one of probably could be 20 different conversations that I had with an older woman who essentially, you know, she was just totally weaned on Fox News. And she was holding up a sign that says Obama wants to put us in FEMA death camps, which was this kind of bizarre conspiracy theory going along. And she was bound and determined if this was actually happening. And when I asked her, I said, well, if that's the case, why haven't you been arrested yet? Because the whole theory was is that Obama was silently picking up people and putting them in concentration camps. And this was considered actual reality yeah. by many folks. So, you know, that's been in the back of my mind, and uh, I also felt that what happened in 2011, after the Republicans took over the House, it got kind of wacky. And the the main point that actually started the book was in 2011 at a Republican presidential debate. It was kind of a minor moment, but it stood out for me when there was the talk about, well, if you don't like Obamacare, what are you going to do? And one of the uh, candidates said, well, was asked, well, what do you, 
you know, what would you do if, if someone was going to die? And the response was essentially just let them die. They are responsible for themselves. Hmm. And there was not a huge cheer, but there was, there was a definite cheer and something clicked. <laughs> wow. And that's when I started uh, creating. Now, these people are often in an alternative universe. And so I started creating one. I started creating a real America because that's what they kept talking about. Like there's some kind of mystical real America out there. Yeah. And that's where I came up with the idea of the execution channel. If people are going to cheer about, you know, their neighbors dying because they don't have health care, you know, why not have public execution so you can make money off of it? Because, you know, if you give nothing but tax cuts to the rich, you're going to end up broke. And so a lot of these states in my real America, you know, decided, well, hey, let's create an execution stadium where we can have public executions that will go on the network. And that's what it essentially was, you know, an execution channel and, uh, you know, drew high ratings and it was a moneymaker for everybody. And so I just started creating this. And then I wondered, well, how did real America come into being? And I started putting that together. And, and then I threw in some things about this kind of weird economic religion called the Galtian Imperatives, which is a spinoff of on Ron's book, Atlas Shrugged, where yeah. the hero is Don Galt, who's this magnificent creature, you know, who wants to lead his followers away from the madness of the moochers and the taxers and the bureaucrats and, and government at all. And so I put it into the stew and, and here we are. Nine, eight years later with the second book. <laughs> Let's just put it this way. There was a lot that went into it. I didn't want to create, I'm sure that you know, there's a lot of uh, nonfiction political analysis books out there, you know, and the last thing the world needed from me was, you know, what's wrong with Kansas or Texas or Pennsylvania or anything like that. I thought that there was something monstrously wrong going on in our politics. Part of it had to do with the media and, uh, and part of it had to do with the fact that the lies were getting far more intense. You know, politicians have always lied. Right. And uh, that doesn't mean that they all lie. But now they're becoming more outrageous and they're becoming accepted by more and more people. And I think that's a dangerous uh, place to be in for a democracy. Yeah. Because one thing to debate policy, you know, what is the best policy? And then you have to work from a certain set of facts to figure out solutions, and to, and most importantly, to figure out compromises, which are necessary in a democracy. Uh, now we just have pitched battle, and that doesn't mean that both sides are equally to blame, but we're in a point where very little actually happens, except these, you know, things with, that are just jammed down our throats. And, um, you know, it starts to wear down the, the kind of bonds, you know, that Lincoln talked about that keep us together. Right. And... Uh, you're seeing that state by state. I mean, the red-blue divide is very real. That doesn't mean that a state is entirely red or a state is entirely blue, but there is a, a significant number of people that are not talking the same realities, and right. that, to me, is, is problematic. Yeah. So I live in Texas, so obviously a red state, but I live in Austin, so it's more of a liberal town. But, right. but I feel like this town is still divided, mm -hmm. and I don't like the way people have become. Like, I think even our next-door neighbor has a different political view than I do, and, and it's just weird. It's like you can, we, I feel this tension, you know? 
Well, and it's growing, and, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. What happens if this political pot keeps simmering? And it's been simmering for years and years, and now it's building up. One of the things that, that you had asked me earlier is that, you know, this was, I, I know it, it, you, you said, uh, I'm not sure if I like the way your mind works, but it really was a fun book to write. Yeah. It was fun in the sense that, you know, I got to be fantastical and farcical. And, uh, but on the other hand, you know, and then I wanted to integrate into it this kind of sobering reality of where we are. And, and more importantly, my alternative universe isn't where we are. Mm-hmm. It's where it's one of 501 of where we could be because we're on this path of, of what I would call political nihilism where nothing matters anymore. Right. And except to kind of uh, smite your foes. And that's, again, that's a dangerous thing for a democracy. Yeah. And I think uh, in the book, Penelope has this line Mm -hmm. where that kind of makes you sit up and pay attention. She says, these typically complacent Americans assume stability and democracy were a given like oxygen. And by the time they paid attention, it was too late. And I mean, that that did kind of happen in 2016. And then, you know, there was a little bit of pushback in, with the 2018 elections, but it is sobering. Yeah, it's it's funny you should mention that because actually I had brought that passage up if you wanted me to read something that I thought was, you know, if there's one part of the book that I thought was important, you know, uh, people have talked to me and, and I've kind of said the first four chapters, first four or five chapters are essentially setting the table for what's to come. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's important is is that people, well, real America can't happen, can it? And I try to explain in those first few chapters, you know, as people talk amongst themselves and as also through news reports, which obviously that comes into my journalism background, and, and also some farcical stuff like, uh, you know, where the media has gone. You know, uh, the, the chapter called Unleash the Pundit Enforcers which it looks like a Fox News kind of uh, doppelganger. But in reality, uh, it's happening uh, in terms of how people are becoming so strident. So one of the parts that you just mentioned, actually, uh, is when Penelope, uh, this is before she becomes known as the the kind of super secret agent. She had just met a British agent, which one of the plot twists is, is that the British actually come to try to save us this time, (laughs) which... uh, you know, was, was my own little plot twist that I kind of like. Yeah. And so he asked her, how does she assess what's happening? So and I'll read this directly from the book. Penelope paused to think about the next part of her answer. I'd be surprised if you didn't know this as well. There is a fanatical minority of true believers who are happy to do the bloody work of murder or mayhem. Then there's a sizable flock of vulture opportunists candidate for the money. She stopped and looked at Bernard intently. He was a British agent. Finally, and I believe this is important, there's a cowed, unarmed majority caught in the middle and unsure of what to do. They were oblivious to what was going on around them, just getting on with life, not giving a second thought to what they considered the normal, screwed-up political food fight. In one sense, who can blame them? The economy could go down the tubes like it does, but that volatility comes and goes. They stopped for a few minutes when they heard automatic weapons fire a few blocks away. Penelope continued, only this was different. This was a violent political pot that had been simmering for years, suddenly boiling over. They never imagined anything that 
could change as they commuted to work and drove their kids to soccer practice to close it up nightly at home with their digital toys. The clues were as clear as day to me, but I am predisposed to detect political disaster. I've lived it. These typically complacent Americans assumed stability and democracy were a given like oxygen. By the time they paid attention, it was too late. And that's, you know, that was from a chapter uh, three, I believe, you know, in the book. Yeah. And again, I was trying to, to let people know kind of what happened. Yes, it's kind of crazy that it could happen, but there are many ways. And, and a lot of this had to do with my own, uh, as an undergraduate and graduate student of history, and especially German history, and, and truly specifically, uh, how did the Nazis come into being? How did they end up in total power? And it wasn't a coup. It wasn't even an election. It was a slow, subtle, and very powerful kind of uh, integration, like invasion of the body snatchers, mm-hmm. one at a time. And the reason that Penelope knows this is that she is actually a transplanted German. And in particular, she was an East German, and she saw her country fall apart at the very end when the Berlin Wall yeah. fell. And so she is attuned to this far more than most Americans would ever be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you think, and, and I'm guilty, I think, oh, no, there's no way that could ever happen again, Nazi Germany, but <laughs> never say never, you know? Yep. Wow. It does make you think. So you talked a little bit about Bowie and then Penelope. Can you tell us about just a couple of the other characters involved? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Bowie is the emperor supreme of life of Real America, Inc. Uh, One of the things that he's done is just gotten rid of government altogether. You know, it's now just a a big corporation running things. And he continues, he's the Peter Principle, you know what that is? Where people of mediocre talent just keep getting promoted up and up and up. Oh, yeah. Well, that's Bowie. And just because of circumstance and fate, he keeps getting promoted. He was uh, originally elected to Congress uh, and then became the leader of what I call the imbecile Congress. You know, and their job was essentially to just create chaos and mayhem and stuff like that in Congress. They weren't there to do anything except just, you know, scream at liberals and or what I call the moocher, liberal, feminist, elitist uh, types in America. <laughs> And then he became the governor of the Real America Republic of Texas. And again, this is a variation in, in my own, you know, this is this didn't really happen, but, you know, it could happen. Right. And, um, and then from there, they were so successful in their kind of the takeover of Texas and a few of the other states is that, you know, they decided to essentially invite states to join them, uh, especially those states that were kind of broke, you know, uh, Bowie lent them money, and then they essentially just sold everything. Mm. They sold all municipal services uh, to private to private industry and stuff like that. And then uh, they were no longer states. In the book, Mississippi and Louisiana don't exist anymore. Now they've merged, and it's Louisiana-Sippi. Okay. And, and one of the things that they do also well is that because Bowie is always open to any ways to make money is that they start slowly reinducing what they call entrepreneurial slavery and essentially it's political prisoners working for free and usually working to their deaths uh, and then corporations from around the world start investing in the country uh, so Bowie is like a figurehead and his main goal is to go out there and make crazy speeches which you saw more than once in the book right and and to kind of rally the crowds 
you know, his talent is that, you know, he insults people and then gets them to love him uh, simultaneously. Uh, Penelope, the psychic, uh, she was actually a, you know, she was a con artist uh, through her many, you know, many years of being in America. And then she got caught in real America when there was a coup in Southern California. She was a fake psychic in uh, Venice Beach. And she became an agent for the British and the Germans. Stopped this real America uh, kind of spread that was happening around the world. And so she escaped eventually in the first book. And then in the second book, uh, she becomes the leader of the Mucha Resistance Front. And she has like a team of like 400 digital warriors, the best hackers and gamers and most outstanding young talent there was in the world uh, to formulate a plan to go after Bowie in real America. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Jones, uh, he is a security, uh, secret police and security czar in real America, but he's forced to be a double agent for Penelope. And so he walks a very fine line. Another great character who doesn't, she figures prominently, but uh, through very small sections, is Mama Bowie, who is Lawrence Bowie's mother. And he keeps talking about how Ma Mama Bowie says this and Mama Bowie says that, and she never said any of it. She actually hates her son. She despises him for, for becoming a dictator. And she eventually uh, defects to old USA and becomes part of the mutual resistance front. And, uh, you know, it devastates them, even though he didn't really know her very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he kept, he, he kept using her as a way to, well, Mama Bowie says we need to birth more white babies because the, the black and brown hordes are coming after us. And I, one of the things that we, I, I should have pointed out earlier, you know, is that real America is a whites preferred nation. <laughs> right. <laughs> of and, course. And it also uh, admires the Confederacy. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of history colliding at once uh, right. there. But right. it, it, it is truly meant to, to be the country. And this, this was in the first book, which was long before uh, Trump. Uh, it's truly meant to be a country where whites can ru truly rule supreme. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what gets me. Is like you wrote this first book anyway before any of this ever happened. Yeah, like I said, there have been some. Uh, there was things going down the track that were pretty clear to me. Yeah. Uh, and it kept going to the edges. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about uh, one of your plot lines. Uh, one of them, anyway. Can you talk about what information warfare is and how that plays out in your story? Well, I, I think that everybody hopefully is somewhat familiar with information warfare. It's essentially what the Russians did to us in the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. uh, one, by hacking uh, both the Democratic National Committee and also Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign and, and her campaign chair, and then releasing that information through kind of a third party like WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, uh, more insidiously, is how they uh, use social media to drum up or, or to solidify the fault lines that already exist. You know, uh, if you read the Mueller report, and I've read it twice, I don't recommend that to anybody else. Really? That's just because I'm a journalist and I'm, I'm somewhat obsessive yeah. about these things. But if you read the Mueller report, especially part one, which was about how the attack happened, it's staggering. Hmm. It, you know, it was systematic. It was intelligent. You know, they created essentially fake organizations you know, uh, coal miners for Trump about how he was going to save the coal industry and and how Hillary Clinton wanted everyone to die and stuff like that. Just, just total nonsense, but it Crazy. fit in with the narrative. 
Yeah. And they even created, they were so effective, they even got people to come to demonstrations or, or to support rallies uh, for organizations that really didn't exist, except in, in Leningrad and in Moscow. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. And it was very effective. That's what's, So uh, I had finished like two or three drafts by the time I was hearing stuff uh, about what was happening in 2016 during the election. I mean, there was a, the alarm bells going off everywhere. And um, I had, uh, many years ago, I was in the uh, uh, military intelligence branch of the Army, so I have a certain uh, affinity, you know, for this. And so then I had a, a loose plot, and then I decided to change it a little bit to create an information warfare um, component in the book mm-hmm. that would attack and uh, at its most vulnerable points. And just like the Russians attacked us at our most vulnerable point. And, you know, that comes from creating, like, legends of people that, are, that, that frighten people. It comes from actual small military victories that are turned into these huge events that garner headlines. It comes from hacking, you know, billionaires to drain their bank accounts. It comes from uh, creating social media accounts that, that both manipulate people buoy and people in real America mm-hmm. and uh, and also try to humiliate him uh, because he's very vulnerable to humiliation. That's the one thing he can tolerate almost anything except humiliation. So all these things kind of, you know, came together to create a plot that goes through, a, you know, a good two thirds of the book, actually through most of it, but a, but a good two thirds of it about how it plays out yeah. and uh, how it puts buoy under siege and how it really almost topples them. Yeah. And are, are both sides doing this? Or is it more well, just the, the... It's really more... I mean, Bowie has, you know, essentially he owns the Galt News Spectrum, which is like 16 channels of this, like, of the Bowie uh, deification network. Essentially, that's what its job is 24-7, mm-hmm. is to deify Bowie in real America. That's its main job. And so, yes, but they're not quite as sophisticated. They have, they, they call on outsiders to do their kind of dirty work. But, mm-hmm. but for the most part, this is the next generation about how you merge uh, kind of uh, digital penetration with actual happenings. Okay. Yeah. In this case, there was, it re, there was an actual battle in San Antonio. Uh, and then there, there was an actual battle in Little Rock, Arkansas. But Penelope uses these to to put pressure on onto Bowie because their goal is to try to stop the spread and to stop foreign investors and American corporations from investing in real America. Yeah. And so they're working on multiple uh, platforms, multiple levels, what they're trying to do. And so, you know, you have to read the book to see how it plays out and why it's important. Yeah, uh, I guess I was thinking that, you know, real America, or that side, uh, uses more, like, propaganda. Yeah, it's propaganda, and but they keep a lot hidden. For example, you know, they talk about entrepreneurial slavery, you know, as if it's the kind of the new thing. And, uh, you know, in reality, they try to keep a lot of it uh, hidden. So theirs is more, you know, they react publicly to these attacks. And that's what Penelope wants them to do, is to start reacting to them. And uh, because the Mucha Resistance Front 
at the beginning of the book is treated like a gang of bandits, like nobody takes them seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, by the end of the book, they're, they're taken quite seriously. Right. And, uh, and that's because of, of what she did. You know, a couple of the things that, you know, I'd learned in my own studies of history and being, uh, a, you know, for a brief time in my life in the intelligence field is the, the CIA-sponsored crews in Guatemala and, and Iran in the uh, early 1950s were casebook studies of how you generate a huge public uh, outcry without much of an actual public outcry. And it, it was enough to scare people into action and, and to run and essentially to allow themselves to be taken over. And so th- there's a part of that in the book as well. Yeah. Now, End Times was just released recently, and I imagine you're busy promoting it right now. Can you tell us what you're doing to market and promote your book? Right now, I'm just I'm still recovering from actually finishing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I actually worked on it. I worked on it off and on for about five years, and so I'm kind of I'm glad it's, it's done and out there. Uh, right now, I'm setting up stuff. I've got another podcast I'm talking to in August. It's an up-and-coming uh, national political uh, podcast called Two Broads Talking Politics. Oh, nice. And they are reading the book, and they want to talk to me about that. And I don't have any book signings right now, but it's still early. I'm doing a lot of social media uh, marketing and word of mouth, and I'm speaking in Keene, New Hampshire, on September 3rd about the book. Uh, to a group at the Keene Public Library. So I'm still setting up things, uh, you know, to get moving. I'm. Uh, it's kind of a tough time because I am being overshadowed by, one, the daily insanity of Trump, <laughs> and two, the fact that we're heading into an election year with an impeachment kind of as, as a side plate. Yeah. So it, it's kind of hard. To, so I need to be very patient. So that's why I talk to folks like you, Sherry, and just to get the word out and uh, to have them take a look. Absolutely. This book is not going to be for everybody. Um, I think that there's going to be some people that really love it because it's it's, it's a political event, and there's going to be some people that really hate it, and and I am fine with that. Uh, Mm -hmm. The intended audience, yes, I, I guess we could say, is not necessarily just liberals or Democrats. It's people with open minds and that who are open to both a little bit of science fiction, a lot of dark humor and satire, and who care about where this country is going. Now, people say, well, you're bashing Trump. And actually, no, I, I created Bowie before Trump. Right. <laughs> I know, right. I, do, I, I kind of feared what was, what was going to happen, uh, because it, whenever you have this type of political nihilism, you end up usually with, uh, some kind of authority figure, you know, standing out, you know, even one as incoherent and as amazingly incompetent like Trump, uh, they still rise to the top. And uh, because essentially he was able to lie and manipulate people better than somebody else. And that's a dangerous place for a democracy, as, as I mentioned earlier. Right. So I would just say people with open minds. That was my intended audience, intended audience, people that, that like to have their humor a little bit on the edge mm-hmm. and, uh, and also are interested about, you know, what could happen with our politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is familiar, but it's not the same. And, and you know that reading it. It's satire. It's funny. It's just in the back of your mind. There's just that little voice saying, hmm, you know, <laughs> what if? <laughs> 
but, and, but uh, I just out of curiosity, what were you left with? What was your kind of what was the kind of taste? What was the what was the sense about when you finished? About oh my, you know? Yeah. So is this too fantastical, too farcical? What 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 was your you know thought about when you finished? Yeah. So when I finished, there was kind of a mixed sense of there was kind of a sense of relief in that. Thank God this is a work of fiction, you know, um, because it is really fantastical. But at the same time, it was a bit of, like I said um, before, probably a, a bit of an eye opener, too, because something this this couldn't happen exactly, but something like this could happen. And so I had very mixed emotions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just I had very mixed emotions. Like I said earlier, it was fun. I enjoyed it, but I was glad it was fiction. <laughs> And I laughed a lot. Uh-huh. Well, that's good. It does walk up to the edge. I mean, I, I intentionally did that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted people to be kind of a little bit shaken in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, but also to laugh and, and to realize, you know, some of the folly, but also realize, you know, some of the consequences. And, you know, that is, it. I, I have to admit, because I, I, I wrote it, uh, that is a hard path to follow. Um, and it wasn't done necessarily intentionally. I mean, because I just had to work from and, and from my own sense of okay, this is what I think. I mean, this is what I'm saying, and I and I hope it's understandable. Right. And um, and, and you don't know if it will be, but um, one of the things that I did is that you asked me about promoting the book. Mm-hmm. I actually created, which I didn't do in the first book. I actually created a focus group of about ten readers. Hmm. As I as I was finishing up my final draft, and and so I had them read it, and I wasn't necessarily asking them uh, for you know uh, copy editing or, or or stuff like that. I just wanted to know if the big stuff was working, and with the exception of one person and then another person that was on uh, on the shelf, I you know eight out of ten were were kind of amazed by uh, all the things that I, I managed to put into the stew. And, uh, and, and how it works. So I, I kind of felt I wasn't just writing this for me. It was right. actually kind of reaching readers. And it may take a while. Uh, that's, you know, that's the thing, especially when you're an unknown like myself uh, and who had to independently publish it because I can tell you I probably have almost 100 rejection letters from agents and publishers. Wow. And many of them said, interesting concept, uh, but it's not something that we would be interested in you know, in publishing. And I kept trying, and then I said, well, once again, we're going to do it on our own, and then we're going to try to, you know, reach out, you know, to the audience. And uh, I, I just take heart in the fact that, for example, Joseph Heller with Catch-22, dozens and dozens of rejection letters of people, you know, of publishers and agents that just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not saying that I'm Joseph Heller, I'm just saying is that I know there's an audience out there for this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I guess it's hard to speculate what goes on inside an editor's mind, like when they're reading a manuscript. But, I mean, do you think there was a bit of fear factor involved? Like, not necessarily that they didn't like it, but just um, just fearful of taking a chance. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe there is. But, yeah. uh, well, again, if they were just reading the first chapter, and that could be on me, is that, you know, the first chapter throws you right in. It just takes you right down the rabbit hole. Right. And so if you don't get a sense of, of what's happening, 
if you don't want to continue walking down that hole or, or you know, go into the tea party, then, you know, maybe it gets lost. And maybe that's on me. But uh, I also think that there is too much of people want a certain thing. Uh, they want a certain mm-hmm. bestseller. They want something, you know, they don't necessarily want something that's going to be controversial. And I'm, I don't think I'm bragging, but there is a bit of controversial aspect to this book. Yeah. That, you know, is there. So and, and, and I, that's, don't worry, I don't worry about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. No. And, I, you know, that's why I love self-publishing, because, you know, I, I feel like publishers really need to start thinking outside of the box. I'm glad that we're hearing independent voices um, in, in all genres, because there are so many good stories out here now that we would never have heard from, you know, a few years ago. And so, you know, because uh, I've seen what's happened to, to my industry in journalism, you know, I've been laid off a couple of times mm-hmm. and uh, I think the same thing has happened in the publishing industry. It's under siege in part because of the, the, the kind of the certain money that used to be there mm-hmm. isn't there anymore. People's reading habits have changed. The industry is consolidated. And I think that, that what comes with that is that there's a, a certain fear factor. Yeah. You know, what can we do to money to survive? And so I don't, you know, I, I don't hold a grudge about that. That That is just the way that it is. So I just have to take a different route. Right, right. So what's next? We know uh, Real America doesn't end with end times, right? Yes. Uh, the next right. one is going to be, uh, it's tentatively titled uh, Penelope, mm-hmm. and it will be, uh, don't, I have no idea when it'll be done, but it'll be done sometime. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it, it essentially, this will be the showdown between Penelope and Bowie. Okay. Uh, you know, they've been kind of dancing around the edges. And now, you know, and he's put a like $50 million bounty on her head uh, because he really wants her. He knows that she's a threat. Yeah. Uh, not just to him, but the whole idea of real America. Because the reality is it's built like a Potemkin village. It's built, it's a house of cards yeah. that could fall easily at any time. Penelope knows that. Even Bowie, who's not the brightest bulb in the, in the back, <laughs> he knows that. Yeah. And so... Uh, uh, that's one of the things about Bowie that we did mention earlier is that, you know, he doesn't really have much of an attention span or, you know, or necessarily a high IQ. So, yeah, but I... he is, he's shrewd. He's very shrewd. And, you know, he knows how to survive. And it's amazing how his enemies keep ending up getting killed while he survives. You know, the people that conspire against him, he always manages to survive. So, yeah, um, that, that, that's his strength. So, Penelope is the tentative title for the next book. That's going to be the third and final chapter of the Real America Trilogy. And it's going to be the showdown nice. between those two. Well, go Penelope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she is delightful, isn't she? Yes, I love Penelope. So now, <laughs> and Mama Bowie. I, I wanted to see more of Mama Bowie. Yeah, well, you know what? I have a feeling that Mama Bowie is going to have a big role in the, oh. in the uh, in the third book, yeah. Oh, good. So don't worry, <laughs> uh, don't worry. She's, uh, she's gonna she's gonna play a very big role. Wonderful, yeah. Well, before we go, I was wondering if you had any predictions on our American upcoming election. I, you know, I've gotten out of the predictions business because it's it's way too chaotic. <laughs> um, you know, especially especially on the Democratic side. You know, who knows? Yeah. All I know is this. 
this is what I, I'm This is what I can almost guarantee. This is going to be the nastiest political election in American history. There's no doubt about it in my mind. It's going to make the other ones, uh, the ones in, you know, 2000 or uh, 1968 or 1876. Um, or 1824 between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, uh, which really did divide the country. Those, this is going to be the nastiest of nasties. And uh, I think that Trump is going to be determined to hold on to power. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the kind of uh, chaos and kind of unhinged behavior, you know, that we just saw this past weekend with his attack on, uh, on Congressman uh, Elijah Cummings and, and, and Baltimore, yeah. Um, you know, I just think it's uh, it, it's just going to be it's going to be ratcheted up, and it's going to be madness. And uh, whoever survives on the Democratic side, you know, is going to have a tall task because, you know, how do you deal with somebody like that? Uh, this isn't like it was four years ago, right? And uh, so, there's not anyway, going to be a smooth changing my, of the guard, yeah. I, it's going to be anything but smooth. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, for those folks that are interested, you know, the first chapter is on my website. And if you go to www.michaelmccordauthor.com, that's michaelmccordauthor.com. And uh, they can go there. You can learn a lot about the book, about how Real America came into being, uh, and some of my other writings, including a, a wonderful interview I did years ago with... Uh, Marilyn Monroe's uh, largely unknown first husband, uh, a wonderful gentleman who, who has now passed. Oh, really? Uh, James Doherty. Oh, nice. So I've got all sorts of stuff on, on the website. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Sherry. This has been really fun. Yeah, it, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today, too. Um, I really want to thank you for joining us and, and sharing the news about End Times. Thank you. And uh, I hope people are, you know, they can find it. There's links on the website to Amazon. It's both as an ebook and as a paperback. And uh, I hope that uh, readers get a chance. Well, we'll take a look at it and take a chance. I think it's a pretty good calculated risk from my perspective, but yeah. I am just a little bit biased. <laughs> well, I <laughs> and, think so too. Um, take a chance. Yeah, and, and take a chance and go for a wild ride. Yeah, it is fun. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank for, you, Sherry. To our listeners, thank you for joining me today for my interview with Michael McCord, author of End Times, More Great Adventures in Real America. To learn more about Michael McCord and his books, visit his website at michaelmccordauthor.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com. <laughs>